0: Hi, this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. This is This Week on Sci-Fi Talk, episode number 22, as I look back on the podcasts that were produced this week, available on Sci-Fi Talk. We kicked things off with a vintage interview with Jules State, talking at a convention about her film, Serenity, which of course was the only feature film, from the Firefly TV series,
1: it was kind of strange, you know, that that we had this second chance. That doesn't happen very often, and you know, it's, it was really amazing. I'm still I can't believe it actually <laughs> it happened. It's incredible. It was a really amazing chance. I must have horseshoes up my, you know, what? Because I cannot believe that it it had happened that way. Um, when we got canceled, it was honestly. It was a goodbye and we all said goodbye. We didn't think that it was nothing was ever gonna come of it. And then the D V D sales were mind blowing and um Universal really loved the show and they got it. They understood it. And they said, This is great. This needs this needs another shot. And the fact that they did that for us is amazing, you know. Forever indebted to Universal. <laughs> They're my favorite studio ever. <laughs>
2: there's more money, obviously, in a feature film and more time That you would... I mean, television is such a breakneck pace. So as far as... Did you see the money as far as the sets? And was... Uh, Josh has direct, directed it himself, so which he's done on the TV show, uh, also on Buffy. So was there more time to kind of get into a little bit more with the characters uh, than, than the TV show had the opportunity?
1: There, there was definitely more time. I think that's the biggest difference that I saw was fact that we got three weeks of rehearsal before we even started to shoot which was amazing and uh we could film one scene all day long if we wanted to It'd take 12 hours doing three pages you know which is unheard of in in the world of television i mean you just you just don't get that it's like a 16 hour day and that's a good day you know it just goes on and on and on and you have to compact all of, you know like sometimes seven or eight scenes in one day And it's a lot of work. And it means you don't have a lot of time to concentrate on certain things. So that was a big factor. That was really cool. And um, you could definitely see the money. Uh, The costumes were a little slicker, a little nicer. The set was more detailed, a little bit bigger. Um, Our dining room was built on hydraulics for the movie. So when we were doing the rough riding through space or whatever, um, the whole thing would actually (laughs) shake uh, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, there's just more detail. You could definitely see it.
2: Now, what aspects of the story that were picked up in Serenity that were left unsaid at the end of Firefly's premature end?
1: Uh, all of the relationships are sort of more developed. Find out a little bit more about River, a little bit more about Simon, Simon and Kaylee, Anara and Mal. everyone. You know, it just sort of continues on. It doesn't solve things, so to speak. But you just find out a little bit more. Find out more about the Reavers, more about the Alliance. There's not, not every mystery is solved. He definitely left room in case we get to do a sequel. So um, yeah, it's it's good though. I'm interested to see people's reactions. See if they like, you know, the solving of the mysteries or if they like them open ended.
2: I just dug the whole chemistry of this cast of the actors plugged into those roles. It's a very diverse, talented cast, obviously, and their whole dynamic, how they interacted with every, you know, just how your character was, like, hired as the engineer. I thought, you know, that's typical Josh Whedon, you know, that kind of coming from a left field kind of thing. But I just like the way the characters and the actors mesh on this show. That's that's what made it special for me.
1: Oh, you're very, very close. And it happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen all the time and um, especially with nine people. There's usually a, a couple of bad eggs. I hate to say that, but there is. I mean, there's like one or two that don't, either don't fit in or they have a bit of an ego or whatever, but it wasn't like that. Everyone fit in so well. I don't know how that happened. I mean, either Joss is really, really brilliant and he chose us specifically because he knew we would mesh really well, or he just lucked out. and. We all did anyway. You know, we all got along so well. We we're were we still very, very close. You know, these people came to my wedding. Like, really, really tight group, you know. It doesn't happen all the time. I'm very grateful for that.
0: There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Trek Tuesday had choreographer Roberto Campanella on making the Star Trek Strange New World cast dance. And really, choreography is not just dance, it's movement. So... You're working with the song so the actor is in the right place to enhance the mood of the song. And I know you've done movement for other shows we'll talk about in a minute or so, but mm-hmm. talk about that aspect of it.
3: No, yeah, I think, as you said, you know, I've been talking about one of the most challenging ones. I think I personally feel is the one that, that looks the easiest, which is the walls of Paul and Rebecca together. The walls doing. yes. That That is not easy. That was not easy for anybody. And yet, they made it look like a million dollars because the thing is that the idea was that they never stop. They can't stop. So the choreography has to keep moving forward. So these guys are telling a story, acting. They're singing. They're dancing. The singing, of course, has to be that probably the lips right. and everything else. Um, they're dancing, and they, we, they especially have to go from a point A to point B and nail that point B. But it's a long hallway. <laughs> it it looks like nothing, but it's so hard. It's it was so hard. So even when they were just walking. Uh, casually that is part of the choreography that is the musical aspect of what you were just saying that they had to be at a certain point they can't the steps could not be too long otherwise they could try, like it was this all the time trying and they made it look like they were having a good time they were just you know, everything was, was nice, but it was the easiest one. The one that looks the easiest, I think, was the most challenging.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
3: is, I think, what you were uh, mentioning just now.
0: You know, it looked like I've been watching musicals forever in my life. And I, I thought I saw that the 1950s glory years musicals was an inspiration for some of the numbers in particular, because actually that's kind of gets this whole thing started with them singing and, and dancing and all. Was any anyone in particular maybe the old Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of musicals?
3: There was, I mean, I was, okay, some of them I was sent some reference ones from Bill and Dana, and, and uh, uh, some of them I think I did some search to see whether or not that was the feel, so there was an exchange but we went from chicago to jesus christ superstar the table one uh the redemption on the table uh reference which was for i think it was for jesse's moment i'm ready um so yes there were there were some um oh there was also yeah, I was sent some references as as the feel of of it all mm-hmm. uh, that was sent to me. So, yeah, which, which helped immensely. Absolutely.
0: Well, another thing, too, is uh, Star Trek is not necessarily a musical show. So the sets are not built for a musical. No. So how did you kind of get around that? I guess you had to carefully stage things so people aren't bumping into things and things like that.
3: Yeah, so we another luxury that production um, gave us was that Dermot, the director came a week prior to his official prepping start time. Um, That what that made it was that I basically was just him and I, he was always available.
0: That's nice.
3: And he was always um, in the in the studio. And so I and so knowing that he was always there, I was <laughs> and there. So what that led us to going, walking around set, predict odd issues, fix them on the spot. With all the ideas, the preliminary ideas that Dermot was going to have um, and exchange some other ideas between him and I, but the way he was going to block it, the way he was going to shoot it. And then again, what I would do, I would... So the waltz, for example, it, there is... I have a lot of videos of me and Kelly dancing before it even. So we've managed to actually, which is another luxury, um, to choreograph and create everything straight to set.
0: Director Timothy Woodward Jr. on his film, Till Death to His Part, joined me for the Wednesday podcast. How did this uh, idea come to you? I mean, this was a script by two other people. So how did you uh, come across this?
4: Um, Natalie Byrne actually gave me the script because I was looking for something to collaborate with her on. And um, I opened it up. It had a Def Leppard quote in it from Love, the, the song Love Bites, which is awesome. Um, and, you know, um, automatically I started seeing it when I started reading it. You know, it's written a little more straightforward kind of action. Uh, the like the intro page, first page is like of the wedding is like one page, and I was like, you know, if we extend this and start it like a nineteen nineties rom com, and we just have a little more tongue in cheek with this and have some fun, this could be cool. This would be fun. It's something interesting for me to do and something different. So I want to I want to rock and roll and do it, and
0: that that's how it came about. I'll tell you. Speaking of Natalie, she is a force of nature in this film. I mean, yeah, she did really good. Thank you. This is a very physical role for her. Um, and I, I know there were stunt people involved. Great, She did all her stunts. She really? did all her
4: stunts, except for the only two things she didn't do. She didn't take the fall from the dirt bike when the fall happened. Um, and she didn't uh, take this one overhead slam where you see the body, you know, the, you know, her actually gets slammed on her back. She didn't take that. Every single thing else, every backflip,
0: kick, punch, that's all her. Wow. She was absolutely amazing. Another performance that stood out to me, Sir Darius. I thought he was phenomenal. Had this cool element about him that I really like. And I mean, he just brought that to the character, obviously. Yeah.
4: Sir Darius is very strong. I mean, he's physically big, first of all. And he's able to play this, you know where the best man is kind of loud and abrupt the entire time he's able to play this James Bond very cool you know character, and then at the end, you know you can see why he's kind of the top dog, you know what I mean, as far as yeah. as far as what's happening. you can see when it clicks on him by the piano, and he you know it's time to take care of business. You see all of that change go away. So yeah, he did a great job.
0: You mentioned Cam. And personally, there's really one one word that popped into my head. He's just psychotic. <laughs> yeah. He was it was
4: fun. He's fun playing that character. And I, I, you know, one of the things when we met and we talked about it, I said, listen, this is a guy who, if he's in the 1950s, he's living in suburbia where there's like every house is the same. He's cutting his grass. He's going, Hey, Tom. Hey, Bill, and he's going inside and he's got probably like a, a cat tied up in his closet, you know, and, and a body in there. And he's literally just going to eating with his two blonde hair, blue eyed kids that look identical to him and, you know, just just completely off the rails, you know what I mean? And there's a body in his trunk. And, and mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Sandman is playing the entire time you imagine him. And he got the character right off the bat. And one thing of his motivation is that one thing about him is he wants to be the best at whatever he does. And right now he wants to be the best, best man possible. And that's yes. his entire thing. And, you know, everything else is tunnel vision right now. He's just literally thinking about that. And he's a romantic. He never gives up on the fact that the wedding is going to happen.
0: Yeah, you know? no, he doesn't. Despite everything <laughs> that happens, it's great. Despite everything, he still wants to see the wedding come true. I like to always good to see Orlando Jones too. Yeah, Orlando's amazing. He's, you know, he's a Carolina boy. Is he so really? He cool.
4: Carolina. Yeah. He, he grew up in uh, South Carolina and nice. he actually still lives in Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh, Full wow. uh, time residency. So he's a
0: Carolina boy. Yeah, that's great. Performance that just blew me away Jason Patrick. He was oh. phenomenal. It was yeah. like, I totally believe this guy and he's usually playing heroes. And yeah. this guy was just, it, he was just, he was cool. And he gives that monologue about what happened to him on that eventful day. And yeah. uh, it was like, I was riveted. He was just fantastic.
4: Thanks. Yeah. Jason, you know, I worked with him on a movie called *Gangsterland* land uh, about Al Capone and uh, you know, whenever we needed somebody to bring it because one side of the movie is very wacky and wild and home invasion. The other side is more grounded and you're finding out backstory and you're finding out stuff. So we needed somebody who could deliver. And when I saw the monologue, when I read it the first time and we started working on it and started figuring out things, I said, look, we need an actor who's strong, who can really like deliver this. And Jason's that guy, you know, and and we come up with this thing between him and I, where he was going to have this kind of, fake Southern accent because him and his, this character had been on the run. And then, you know, there was going to be a cool reveal where it just kind of dropped. Yeah, and I saw that. It was really cool. it, yeah. kind of chilling. You're like, and you know, it all comes together. And it, and we took our time on getting it together on purpose because that's where the mystery box is. If you know what's going on early with that story, then you, you know, every people can say all day long, oh, we'll get to it quicker. No, if you, if you knew that, you wouldn't be as interested. When I pop back, you'd be boring. So even as much as people are wanting us to get back into the home invasion and get back to that, that other storyline ends up paying itself off where you go, oh, and it kind of comes together in a nice little bow and you realize what we're doing um, when we're going back and forth for that. Because it's, it's very contrasty and yeah. going back and forth. And sometimes it can feel a bit like, well, why did they? But if you actually go back and look at the movie, every uh, bit that you go, when we go to that, the storyline is broken up into act breaks, the end of act one, midpoint of the movie, the end of act two, you know? So we, we literally go into those as structurally beat, but, you know, try to tie
0: it all in together at the end. There's more of this week on Sci-Fi Talk, my episode 22 so stay tuned. We close with Friday's podcast with Robbie Mel from 2019 talking about Code 8, a movie that went from a YouTube short to a Netflix feature. Your character is Connor Reed, and in this world, four percent of the population has supernatural abilities, but you think they would be and be billionaires, but actually it's the opposite. They live in poverty. And it sounds like a man caught in the middle. He wants to do well for his mom, who's ailing, and yet he meets Garrett, played by Stephen Amell, you know, and who worked mm-hmm. for a drug lord. So it sounds like he's kind of caught in the middle between doing what's right and, and helping his mom, but also getting the money to help
5: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the movie is is driven by uh, Connor's moral compass and how far he's willing to go to save the most important person in his life. You know, in an early version of the script, we talked about it being uh, Connor's younger brother. And we just thought, you know, with a mom is is a little more relatable and easier. Everybody's, you know, everybody can picture doing something they, you know, probably wouldn't feel comfortable doing normally uh, if it meant you know, saving saving their mom. Uh, that, and <laughs> we'd have to deal with uh, a child actor who can't work as many hours. and uh, we were already up against the gun for uh, for getting as much time on um, uh, as much time out of our money as we possibly could. What I really related to was this guy who's just trying to do the right thing. He's just doing, you know, he's doing bad things for the right reasons. Uh, we just wanted to see how far we could push that. And some people at the end of the movie don't agree with what Connor did and, you know, other people do, which is what we wanted. We wanted it to, you know, we wanted the movie to raise questions and to to split people and uh, and, and, and open up conversations, which uh, which we had in the short film. It was really fun to read, you know, the YouTube comments and people, you know, people who were saying, that they, you know, they thought he deserved it and other people didn't. I mean, that's really what you're hoping for when you make a project.
0: What is also kind of hampering things, he's not only with Marcus, he also is being chased by a a militarized police force and it's Agent Park and Agent Davis are after him. So that just Mm -hmm. gives him something else to worry about too. Talk about playing off that aspect that, you're basically looking over your shoulder all the time.
5: Yeah. I mean, you know, these aren't superheroes, right? We wanted to tell a story where, you know, people had these powers or abilities, but for the most part, like if you're a a class one, it's really not that useful and it's illegal to use them anyway. So, you know, we wanted to kind of create this class system that, you know, most people watch a superhero thing and they, they wish they had those, powers we just wanted to try and flip it a little bit and um you know maybe this wasn't you know a, a, a lucky thing to have but we also wanted to show you know what would if these powers were, were real you know what would happen and how would you know how would the government or how would um the state combat that and you know if, right. if when you fear something you you know you you don't you handle it with uh, aggression, and um, right. this militarized p- police force was a cool way to do that. It was great visually; it felt like it could totally be, be real. We we watched a lot of Boston Dynamics stuff and looked at kind of the 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 robotics that are, in, that are already in the works now and the drone systems, and it just kind of felt like, yeah, you know, this is where we could be heading. To save the the lives of of police officers by using these robots but uh, you know uh, when do you cross a line and and at what you know how much force right. are they allowed to use
0: if you enjoy this podcast you can subscribe at sci-fi talk at apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast additionally you can get free lifetime access at sci-fi talk plus with early release exclusive and uncut episodes just click on the link in the show notes it's free for a lifetime this is tony talato